Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 22, the very last chapter in the Bible. Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. And if you could open your scriptures now to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 for our sermon text this morning. 2 Corinthians 5, the, um, the passage is verses 9 through 15. If, if you looked closely at the bullets and you were a bit confused, but 9 through 15 is what we'll be looking at. So up until this point, Paul has kind of given this extended 
account in, in chapters 4 and 5 explaining the, the spiritual realities of the Christian life. But starting here in verse 9, he gives us some implications, some practical implications for these truths that we looked at previously. And so if we really believe the things that he says, if we really believe the things that we say about God and Jesus and man's sin and depravity and the saving and renewing of man that is offered through Christ, it will change our lives. It will make a difference in how we live. And so what Paul is describing here in these verses is the motivation for the Christian life, really the the compelling reasons to live the way that we live, the, the reasons that we live as Christians, as little Christ. So what is it that motivates you to do what you do? What is the why behind your what? Are you motivated to live a life that honors God, or do you only live out of a sense of duty, which is its own motivation? Not necessarily always wrong. But when we only live out of a sense of duty, it's much harder to sustain the energy for doing the right thing. And we tend to fall into the trap of trying to save ourselves, or we feel self-righteous and think that we're better than everyone who doesn't do it the way we do. But when we're motivated by what is true and right, we will be freed from these ditches. So all of our behavior is motivated by something. And the question is, what is motivating you? Is it biblical or is it a selfish motivation? You know, I was talking to the kids this morning and I realized I I usually start my my time with them by asking them what a word in the title of my sermon means. And I said, maybe I, I choose too many big words for my sermon titles. But we talked about motivation. What is motivation? There's a story about a city in the Netherlands that had a problem with litter. And so the sanitation department tried doubling the litter fine and increasing the number of litter agents who patrolled the area, but to no avail. Then someone suggested that instead of punishing those who littered, they could reward people who put garbage in trash cans. They thought about devising a trash can that could dispense coins when litter was inserted, but that was too expensive. But it led to another idea. The sanitation department developed a trash can that played a recording of a joke when trash was deposited. Different cans played different kinds of jokes, and the recordings were changed every two weeks. Citizens went out of their way to put garbage in trash cans, and the streets were clean again. So you see, when people want to do something, they do not find it a chore to do it. When they are motivated, they do not need to be badgered or nagged or cajoled or punished into doing the right thing. And Paul, in this passage, explains why Christians should do the right thing. And he gives three motivations for Christian behavior. The fact is, we are not robots. We can choose how we will order our lives. We can choose what we will give attention to, what we will make important and what takes priority over the next thing. Now, granted, there are many things that are out of our control. There are many burdens that we bear that we did not ask for. But the way we respond to difficulties, which he just addressed in the previous verses, he says, light momentary affliction, in this tent we groan, being burdened. And the way that we interact with others, 
which he addresses in the rest of this chapter, those are things that we are responsible for. And being motivated to respond and interact in godly ways to our difficulties and to our suffering will go a long way in helping us to do this well. So Paul mentions three things in these verses that motivate the Christian. And if we believe and understand these things, it will make a difference in how we live. So first is the judgment seat of Christ, second, the fear of the Lord, and third, the love of Christ. So let's look for these in our text, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 15. So whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So as I mentioned, Paul had just written this section describing the the beauty and paradox of living in Christ. He says things like, God has shown the light of the knowledge of his glory into our hearts. We are being transformed into his image as we behold his glory. But he also says we are jars of clay. We are afflicted, perplexed, persecuted. We are given over to death for Jesus' sake. But through this affliction, because of this suffering, the life of Jesus is made more visible. It is made manifest in our bodies. And he says the surpassing power of the gospel then is obviously not our own. So we can face affliction with courage. We remember God's promise to redeem. We remember the eternal building from God which awaits us after our groaning in this life is ended. We walk by faith, knowing that what we see is not all that there is. But while we can rejoice in the promise of future redemption and joy, we're also called to live in the present. We live now in God's creation as God's people. The kingdom of God is at hand, as Jesus taught us. So how do we, as God's people, in God's kingdom, live in a world of brokenness, in a world of suffering and evil. In a world of competing voices, what orients us to the right path? And what keeps us from pursuing our own agenda of self-preservation and self-exaltation? What is our motivation for doing the right thing? Paul gives us our first motivation for doing the right thing, In verse 10, he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And our first reaction to that statement may be one of fear or apprehension. It is a sobering thought to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The things we are doing now 
will be evaluated by Christ when we stand before him. But I think if we evaluate this statement in context of the rest of New Testament teaching, this should be a motivating statement, an encouraging thought, and something that gives us hope and joy. The concept in view is not judgment for sin, but receiving our reward for serving Christ. We will be rewarded then, so we aim to please him now. Now, I'll admit I'm not an expert on eschatology and things that have not yet happened. But this passage is probably not referring to the judgment of the wicked on the great white throne described in Revelation 20. Most commentators agree that this judgment seat in this passage refers to the judgment that happens on the day of the Lord, when the church is raptured, described in 1 Thessalonians 5, and Revelation 20 is the final judgment of the wicked. So the, the exact timing of when this judgment takes place may be up for discussion, and it, it may depend on your views of eschatology, but the fact that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ is established. And that truth is something that Paul says affects us now. It motivates us now. We make it our aim to please Christ. And if we are in Christ, if we have believed in him, have died with him, and have submitted our lives to him, we do not need to fear the judgment seat of Christ. If we are in Christ, appearing before his judgment seat does not need to be something that we dread. 1 John 2.28 says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. But if we have a wrong understanding of our works, if we have a wrong understanding of our deeds, we will not have confidence when we stand before Christ. If we think that, that God will put all of our good works on a scale and compare them to our bad works and then decide our fate, then we will shrink from him in shame at his coming. What Paul is referring to here in 2 Corinthians about appearing before the judgment seat of Christ is not an evaluation of whether we have done enough good works to merit salvation or to merit entrance into heaven. Because our salvation is not based on what we do. We are saved by faith in Christ. And we must fully embrace our salvation by faith in order to appreciate what Paul says about our works being evaluated before the throne of God. There's a song that I like, the, the lyrics that speak about our confidence in Christ. It says, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Our standing before God is not determined by who we are, but who Christ is on our behalf. And all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Christ has paid the price for us by his blood, for us to stand before the judge 
without shame, without guilt, to be fully justified and fully righteous. And this work of Christ is appropriated to us. It is applied to us as we acknowledge and repent of our sin and confess our need for God and place our faith and trust and confidence in him to be our Savior and Lord. It is faith alone that saves us, but the faith that saves us is not alone. Living faith is evidenced by the way that we live, and living faith is demonstrated by changed lives, by obedience to God's word, by submission to God's call, by love for each other, and by living as Christ lived. So being saved by faith is something that, that we need to be convinced of. It's something that, that it's the, the bedrock of what we do. But it does not mean that our works don't matter. It does not mean that we are free to disregard the commands of God. Romans fourteen twelve says, Each of us will give an account of, a, of himself to God. And if we are in Christ, we can stand in confidence before him at his coming and before the judgment seat. And the people that, that Paul is talking about here are Christians. He's saying the believers will give an account of themselves before God. And, and so this is not to determine whether they are saved or not, but it's to receive the reward for their faith. Now, historians say that the concept of a judgment seat was a familiar one in the first century Roman Empire. It, it literally means step, and it generally referred to a place from which official decisions were made in judicial matters. And sometimes it was a portable seat that could be taken out to the, the town center, and, and people would come before it to make appeals to the ruler, and judgments would be handed down. In Acts 18.12, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, which would be the same concept as the judgment seat. And so from the judgment seat that the sentence or the verdict would be delivered. But there's another image of judgment seat from that time that the, the step was something that athletes would, would stand on to receive their rewards from the, particularly the Grecian games in Athens. And so those presiding over the games would evaluate the athlete's performance and award the appropriate trophy. Now remember, Corinth was a city in Greece, and, and so they were f very familiar with the Greek games. And there was actually a big sports stadium in Corinth. So when Paul says judgment seat, in their immediate context, they probably thought about it in the athletic sense. And so in, in that context, standing before the judgment seat was not about having a sentence of punishment, but it was something you, you went up to to receive a prize. And, and so using that concept, believers standing before the judgment seat is more like believers standing before the reward seat. We will stand before God and receive what is due for what we have done in the body. Jesus taught about rewards. He told the story of the stewards in Matthew 25, and they were based, they were judged based on how faithful they were with what they were given. It mattered what they did. And in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says that believers, those who have built their foundation on Christ, will have their work judged by fire. And he says, if you're building on the foundation of Jesus with worthless things, your work will be destroyed and you will be saved, but only as through fire. In other words, the quality of the work will be evaluated. 
So are you satisfied with wood, hay, and stubble when you should be building with gold, silver, and precious stones? A few other examples of, of Jesus teaching about rewards. He says in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Mark 9:41. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Luke 6.35, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And finally, in Revelation 22, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense or reward, same word, with me to repay each one for what he has done. Now, granted, some people get nervous talking about rewards for faithfulness because they think it promotes legalism. And that is not what this is teaching. Legalism puts the law above grace. It adds to the gospel. We are saved by faith, and salvation is a free gift, but we will be rewarded for our faithfulness. And so in our passage here in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, we will receive what is due for what we did in the body whether good or evil. And this word evil, generally, as it's used, doesn't refer to a moral or ethical evil. It's not saying, you know, your, your good stuff versus your evil stuff. It, the idea has more of an idea of, the word has more the idea of worthless. So are you doing things that are good and worthwhile, or are you spending your time on worthless things? Again, the, the same idea, I think, that we saw in 1 Corinthians 3, where the quality of the work is evaluated. Are you doing things of eternal value? Are you investing your talents? Are you building on the foundation of Christ, pursuing things of eternal significance? Or will your work be evaluated at the judgment seat as having been worthless. So what if you can buy your dream car or build the dream house or afford the best vacations if you are not investing in things of eternal value? So Paul says we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We will appear as believers to receive the reward for what we have done in the body. And it is this time of accounting for what we have done in our body that motivates us now to pursue those things that please God. We make it our goal or ambition to please God because we will appear before him to give account for what we have done and to receive our reward. Having an authority in your life that is watching you makes you more conscious of what you are doing. So you think of a classroom full of children and the teacher walks out yeah, at first things are okay, everyone's doing what they should, and then one kid starts to act up just a little bit, and then more and more kids get involved, and soon the whole class is just kind of in chaos. I'm just making this up, I'm sure it wouldn't happen here. But the, the door opens, and the teacher walks back in, and all the kids just magically melt back into their seats and, and begin working again. Yeah, if they had known that the teacher was standing outside the door the whole time looking in the window, they probably wouldn't have been so quick to start the ruckus. But we can't just be hard on the kids. It's the same way, for example, when we, you're driving down the road. You're driving in complete peace, not doing a thing wrong, 
but then you see an officer in your rearview mirror and you start to kind of nervously go down this mental checklist. Do you have your seatbelt on? Are you driving a speed limit? Are the kids in their car seats? Is your inspection and registration good? And you might even slow down a little bit just to be safe. That there's something about an authority that is watching us that makes us more aware of what we're doing. You know, God is our authority, and our awareness of his presence and our awareness of our need to stand before him and account for our actions motivates us now to focus on living in worthwhile ways. So stop pursuing things that will burn up. Invest in things of eternal value. All the material things of life will be destroyed. Everything that we pursue in terms of money and possessions and earthly treasures are temporary, but people will live forever. So whether it's your family, your neighbor, your church community, or your coworkers, they will live forever. Investing in people is an eternal investment. The people in our lives will live through eternity. But it's easier for us to get wrapped up in chasing things we don't need instead of pursuing people who are around us. And so as a Christian, make it your aim to please God because you will need to answer to God for the ways that you lived. Make it your aim to please God now because someday you will stand before Christ to receive your reward. That is the first motivation. The second motivation that Paul lists is the fear of the Lord. And this is kind of the other side of the same coin. We are serving the same God. God is gracious and kind and slow to anger and abounding in mercy. But as it says in, November, in Numbers fourteen eighteen, he will by no means clear the guilty. And there were examples in the Old Testament when God sent immediate judgment for sin, and, and it was destruction by death. But in general, God is showing remarkable restraint to the wicked. He is allowing the forces of evil to operate on earth for now. And he doesn't stop every wicked man in his tracks. But at the judgment, the wicked will be destroyed because evil cannot exist in the presence of God's glory. For now, God is allowing the powers of darkness to exist. And we know that evil is present and growing in many ways in our culture. But the day is coming when he will judge the wicked, and they will be thrown into the lake of fire, and evil and death will be destroyed forever. So God's judgment is a thing that the wicked should dread. But we don't just fear God because he will punish the wicked. He's not just the man who carries a big stick. There's another kind of fear in God's glory that should strike a kind of, of fear in believers' hearts as well. It's the sheer power and weight of his glory that overwhelms anyone who comes near. And we see examples of this when Moses met the Lord in the burning bush in the desert. He hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And when the presence of the Lord descended on Mount Sinai, all the people of Israel trembled because of the thunders and lightnings and the loud trumpet blast. And when Peter, James, and John went up with Jesus, who was their own teacher and master that they loved, and when they saw him transfigured before him, and they saw his glory revealed, they were terrified, it says. 
in the face of something so powerful as God's glory, something that exposes our own smallness and weakness and our vulnerability, our response is fear. Not fear because we think the power is malicious or out to get us, but because we realize that we are so completely helpless before him. So for a very rough analogy, think of someone who is afraid of heights. Not someone who's afraid of, of you know, walking on a roof, but someone who's got this, this phobia of you know, standing on a second-story balcony and looking down. Now imagine a glass bridge over the Grand Canyon or, or between two skyscrapers, and you blindfold this person and take him out on a walk in the middle of the bridge, and then you take the blindfold off and let him see where he is. It might be the strongest bridge in the world and have big, tall sides on it. But when this person realizes how high up they are, they will freak out. They might even pass out. It's just this overwhelming sense of, of your powerlessness and vulnerability. Now, there's plenty of, of limitations to this little analogy, but that overwhelming sense of helplessness is maybe part of what we will sense being in God's presence. Knowing, therefore, the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Whereas the King James Version says, the terror of the Lord. This word is often translated fear in the New Testament, but it also is translated awe and reverence and respect. So when the disciples were in a boat and saw Jesus coming to them on the water, they said, it is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But another time when they were in a boat and nearly died in the storm, and Jesus spoke to them, spoke to the storm and quieted the sea, it says they were filled with great fear and said, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So I think we're motivated to persuade others because of both aspects of fearing the Lord. We, we fear, respect, reverence his mighty power and his love. And we also fear and feel that the terror of the judgment that he will render to the wicked. Now, we don't always know what to do with this, and, and we might do it poorly sometimes. We don't want to be the judgmental, critical, condemning people that are always telling everyone they are going to hell. That's not generally a well-accepted way to, to start a discussion. But we do need to say the truth when it needs to be said, and we need to stand up for what we believe if it is really true. And if we fear God, and if we know the terror of the Lord, we will not be afraid of the repercussions of standing up for what is right. We will seek to honor God by the way that we relate to others, including speaking the truth in love and speaking the truth in ways that they can actually hear, and that will invite them to consider the truth instead of just dumping it on them like a bucket of ice water. And while this involves talking to the guy on the street or to unbelievers, sometimes it is just as hard to talk to our own brother or sister in the church or the family member who is a believer, but maybe they are struggling or failing in a certain area of their life. Sin is crouching at the door. It seeks to overtake them. Do you seek to persuade them to be faithful? Will you plead with them to resist sin? Will you go out of your way to strengthen them, to encourage them, to pray with them and for them? Or do you say, as eh, just their personal problem, I'm going to stay out of it. Their sin is none of my business. Knowing the fear of the Lord, 
we persuade others. And that is our second motivation. And the third motivation that Paul mentions is the love of Christ. The love of Christ controls us. Now, the other motivations might be somewhat external to us, but this one works by first reshaping us internally. It becomes a transforming reality that directly influences every interaction that we have with others. So the first motivation, standing before the judgment seat, is more how we think of ourselves before God. The second one, the fear of the Lord, is how we think about God in relation to those around us. And this one, the love of Christ, is how God represents himself through us. Now, we don't have time to explore it fully this morning. We'll just introduce it, and the rest of the chapter continues to give some implications of this kind of transformation. But Christ died that we who live might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. R.C. Sproul quotes a professor of his who once said, The essence of Christian theology is grace, and the essence of Christian ethics is gratitude. I'll say it again. The essence of Christian theology is grace, and the essence of Christian ethics is gratitude. So in other words, the essence of what we do, the thing that motivates us to choose the right thing over the wrong thing, the essence of our ethical choices is gratitude. Gratitude for the life that we have been given through the death of Christ. Gratitude for the new creation that we are in Christ. And gratitude that we are not enslaved to the powers of evil. The love of Christ controls us. So have you experienced that? Have you received his love? Have you been transformed by his grace? Or do you still try to manage your relationship with God through formulas and rules that are easier to control? Do you love others in ways that invites them to relationship with others and with God? Or do you try to establish that you are better than they are and that they are in the wrong? How would your most difficult relationships be changed if you were controlled by the love of Christ? You no longer need to live for yourself. You do not need to defend yourself, prove yourself, or reward yourself. You live for God. You live out of gratitude for what he has done for you. His love in you controls how you live and how you relate to others. So let's seek to become individuals who are motivated by God's love, to become a church that is motivated by God's love, and through his love to become a people who can be agents of God's kingdom on earth. Let's have a song.